Sometime back, one of my favorite candy bars came out with a new viral advertising strategy. It went on to be uh, a national uh, media strategy, and maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's one of my favorites. <clears throat> it's uh, Twix. And if you know the candy bar, there are two... Um, <laughs> Two bars inside, yes? And if you've uh, watched the, the campaign, there's a great debate whether you want the right one or the left one, right? In fact, it was so popular that lately they were, they're packaging, and I don't know if you've, you've bought a, a pack of Twix lately, but they're packaging like that. You get it at the store and it says, these are both right. You seen that? Or both left. So just in case you're like, I, I, you, these are two right ones and two left ones. It's been a fantastic success for them. Uh, right or left. And maybe you've engaged in the debate. Do we got anybody who likes right Twix? Anybody here? Okay, we got some right. Anybody the left Twix? No left Twix? Anybody just like Twix in general? Okay, there we go. All right. You know why it's a fantastic strategy? Because in our context, in our culture, people are easily drawn to this idea of the left or the right. When you read the title, you probably thought, are we talking politics? Uh, it'd be easy, right? That's the conversation. Are you on the right or are you on the left? Are you conservative or are you liberal? Our conversation today is not about politics, but it is about power. It is about power. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Mark? We're in Mark chapter 10. If you did not bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We put one in the pew right in front of you. Just reach there and grab it next to the hymnal. That's the thing that had songs in it. Uh, and then, um, and then the, the Bible should be right next to it. And I want you to open to the book of Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. So it's Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 10. Over the last several weeks, we've been journeying through the book of Mark. And we're going to continue journeying all the way until we remember Easter here in our community. So we're in Mark chapter 10. And if you've been with us, you know that Mark is different from the other Gospels. For one, it's the shortest one, the easiest one to read through because it's shorter. But you also discover that Mark has an emphasis. There's, there's a point of view that he's trying to get across. And oftentimes, he doesn't tell other stories that the other Gospels do. He gets kind of right to the point, just addresses the issue. And in particular, we've been looking at something that repeats here in the book of Mark, and that's Jesus trying to cut through the clutter and address the real issue at hand. And we're going to encounter here in Mark chapter 10. So if you're Mark chapter 10, say amen. amen. Okay, if you're not there yet, let me encourage you to go because maybe you didn't know it, but you came to the house of God today. And in the house of God, we read the word of God to know the will of God. That's how we do it here in Bonita. I'm not going to apologize for that because we believe in the word. Amen? Amen? We trust the word. The word of God has shown itself, revealed itself to be trustworthy, and uh, we find God's faithfulness in it. So Mark chapter 10, are you there? Say amen. amen. Okay, we're there together. I want you to follow along with me. We're in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. Beginning with verse 32. <clears throat> what I'm about to read will be familiar to what we described last week, but I'm going to read it anyway. The Bible says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem, and with Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. So I'm just going to give you some context here. Jesus is on his way, traveling through Jerusalem. If you've read the rest of the Gospels, and certainly up to this point, Jesus, when he began his public ministry, that's, that's what, how we refer to the time when Jesus began to publicly proclaim that he had come from God to do a job for God, on mission for God. And his public ministry is only the latter stages of his life. Uh, we think he lived close to 30 years because before he was publicly known, before his baptism in public and his public ministry. His public ministry lasts about three to three and a half years. 
So during those three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus had gone on tours. He had traveled in the surrounding regions, uh, not just his hometown, but his surrounding regions, to begin to spread and talk about the message that God had, had sent him to relate to us. And where we find him now is sort of on the last legs of these journeys. Because what we're, we're about to uncover is that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, where you know, because you've been to church, you know what's going to happen here at the end of this month, where Jesus will eventually, eventually be crucified. So we're nearing the end of his ministry on earth and heading towards this. And what we read last week, if you were with us, is that at this point in the journey, at least in Mark's telling, Jesus begins to stop talking in metaphors and begins to just say it like it is. He stops telling parables, and in Mark's words, he speaks plainly. He's, he's being more blunt. And last week we read that Jesus, uh, while, you know, used the parable form and told stories and relayed things, quoted scriptures, began to just address his disciples and saying, okay, I'm just going to tell you exactly. And now he repeats that. But here's what's different. In, this, in the scene that we're about to watch, Jesus is already acting differently. Something has happened to him. See, if you look closely, the Bible says that they were on the way to Jerusalem. And if you know, like I said, the scriptures, you know that the disciples were against this move. See, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was sort of the capital of Jewish society. And Jerusalem was where all the religious leaders lived and worked and where they ruled. So Jerusalem was essentially the power center of the religious world in Jesus' day. And this power center did not appreciate Jesus, to put it mildly. Jesus and everything that he said and did seemed to undermine their power and authority. So for some time now, the religious leaders had been plotting, scheming how to take Jesus out of the picture. He was upsetting things. He was saying things that didn't compute with their ideas. And he was, he was, he was gaining popularity. He was threatening their place, position, and power. We read a couple of weeks ago that they would send spies as Jesus was making these tours. And these spies were always looking to catch Jesus doing something wrong so they could bring him up on charges. So when Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to Jerusalem, the disciples are like, I don't think that's a good idea, Jesus. Because nobody likes you there. Maybe we just, you know, go somewhere else. But something had happened to Jesus that made him walk with determination. Mark says Jesus was leading the way. If you read the other stories that we've discussed here, normally when Jesus is traveling, he's not at the front. He's usually at the back. It's his disciples that are clearing the way. If you read the rest of it here, sometimes disciples are like shooing kids off. Hey, get away. Leave him alone. Jesus is coming through. Jesus is coming through. He's the most important. So he's coming at the back while disciples are making way through the crowds. Because wherever Jesus went, people would crowd around him. But in this particular picture, Jesus is leading the way. You know why? Because there's a determination in his heart. He's trying to accomplish something. He's walking with purpose. He's walking ahead. He's leading the way. And the Bible tells us that the disciples, his closest associates, they'd been with him. They'd watched him. They knew. They were even kind of taken aback. They were astonished, the Bible says, or amazed in your version. And others, the surrounding people, were following with fear. They don't know what's going to happen, but something is different now. He's acting different. He sounds different. He's walking in front. He's walking with purpose. 
And Jesus turns to the disciples, the Bible says here, that he took the disciples, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. And he spoke plainly, and he said this, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Jesus has done sort of like trying to paint this picture with parable. Jesus has done sort of like hinting at stuff. He is just being direct. We're going to Jerusalem and this is what's about to go down. The Son of Man, always in reference to himself, will be betrayed, handed over, mocked, spit upon, flogged, then killed. But he will rise again. When we encountered him last week, uh, earlier in Mark, he told them, look, the Son of Man must suffer. You remember this? Must suffer, be put to death, then he will rise again. But the disciples aren't really quite getting it. So now he speaks even more directly, more clearly. And, and as I read it, I thought, wow, why so much detail? See, he's saying the Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be handed over mocks. That means he's going to be ridiculed. He will be spit on and flogged before they kill him. In our first glance, we're like, wow, Jesus, how do you know that's what's going to happen? Obviously, Jesus is capable of divine revelation. God has, will, uh, and will continue to speak to him and reveal his will to him. But do you know what Jesus is actually doing right here? He's not saying anything new. All he is, is quoting scripture. Because these very same things is what has already been spoken about the Messiah. Isaiah, the book of Psalms, they foretold these things. So while Jesus is speaking, he's not speaking new knowledge, new revelation. He's actually pointing to previous revelation, something that all good Jewish young men and women would have heard and learned in church, yet never paid attention to. Does that sound familiar? And Jesus is saying the Son of Man will be betrayed, handed over, mocked, spit on, flogged, crucified. Because that's what the Bible has always said. You see, friends, I can't stress this enough. If you want to know the will of God, you've got to read the Word of God. It's all in there. But I sense by your hesitation, you're not quite sure you want to trust it. Jesus quotes here the Old Testament. He says, this is what's going to go down. But there's a certain difference in his tone because he's walking with purpose now and he's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is where it will happen. This is, it's about to happen. It's not just some future reality, you know, the kind that you've been used to talking about when you talk about Jesus. Yes, he will come someday. Remember? Oh, Maranatha, Jesus will come someday. Like a future thing that doesn't really matter in the present. Jesus is saying, no, I'm walking towards it because this is about to happen. It's going down. He's serious now. There's a briskness in his step. There's, a, there's purposefulness in his voice. There's a seriousness in this conversation. And he's being specific and detailed so the disciples will take him seriously. And yet, it seems the disciples weren't listening. They were, I'm afraid, like some of you, looking at me, nodding, but your heart is somewhere else. The disciples are like, hmm, amen, yes, flogged, mm-hmm, praise God, betrayed, hallelujah, yes, yes, preach it, 
preach it. Uh-huh. Spit upon. Yeah, we got it. Flogged. Betrayed. Yes, yes. Chief priest. Sure. Whatever. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. Because if you look at what happens next, the, the true state of their heart is revealed. Jesus is walking to his death and not any simple death. He's being very specific. Flogged. Imagine that. When's the last time you got whipped? Now, I'll be honest with y'all here. I've been whipped before. Have you been whipped? No, don't, don't get any ideas. I was a kid. I was in South America. There's corporal punishment still down there. There's no, what is it, Child Protective Services? That, there's no such thing in Bolivia. Child Protective Services, that's your mom and dad. Their job is to, like, whoop you in the shape. That's, that's CPS in Bolivia. And when I was a child, every Bolivian mother and father knows what a Kimsa Charani is. It's got a name. <laughs> you buy it at the store. They're everywhere. And some of you guys, in your own cultures, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's called Kimsa Chanani. It's an Aymara word, which is a native language in Bolivia. And it's, um, there's a version made for animals, and there's a version made for kids. And they're only slightly different. <laughs> and the version made for kids is made out of cowhide. Uh, it's woven. It's got a thick lead like this, and then eventually the, the weave becomes three-pronged. And at the very end, it's tied into a knot. So what is it? It's a whip, yes. And um, when you misbehave, as your pastor has been known to do on occasion, he would get called into his mother's room or dad's study, and then he was made to account for his errors uh, by a number of lashings. And my brothers and I would take turns hiding behind the doors to make sure we kept track. So we knew who had the record for most lashings. Uh, that's, that's how I was raised. I didn't know better. Have you been whipped before? Maybe not with that. Maybe your parents did something else. If you're a Filipino, you probably got a chinela, right? You got a chinela. Or something other. Not, nothing that you would do now. I, I, I'm aware of that. But it's just how it was. But, but we're not talking about, we're not talking about being, being punished, being disciplined by somebody who's responsible for you, who's trying to correct you. We're not talking about, you know, uh, 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 handing out punishment for something that you did. Something. We're talking about Jesus being flogged, not, not like I was, not a simple matter of correction, but no, what they wanted to do was destroy his spirit by slowly taking pieces of his body away. So the whip that Jesus was going to be flogged with was much longer, much longer. It would be more like you would use on a large animal and, and at the ends of this particular braid were pieces of bone or sharp rocks because the idea of that whip was that when it hits you, it would split you open. It would leave marks and gash your skin. Why? Because what they wanted to do was break you down physically. Break you down emotionally from the pain. They wanted to shame you. And Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be shamed and he's going to be flogged. He's going to be beaten and spit upon. He will be ridiculed. And you know what the disciples were thinking? They were thinking, mm, mm, amen, amen, amen. Because look at what happens next. Jesus says this is about to happen. And then, the Bible says, verse 35, that then or right after... <laughs> At least Mark is making this point. Soon after that, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
Jesus has this moment. He's being serious to his disciples. Look, guys, I just want you to be ready. You, I know you, you haven't quite captured, but I'm about to endure something very different. I'm inviting you to follow me into this life of suffering, of death, before there can be resurrection. You remember? I'm inviting you. For if anyone is going to follow me, you must... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and walk with me. It is a road of suffering. And Jesus says, I'm not sure you're quite getting it, but what I'm about to do is I'm endure shame and guilt and pain. But I will rise again. He's had this serious moment, and all the disciples looked at him like you're looking at me now. They did the... They nodded, they affirmed, they looked concerned. And then they called Jesus to the side. Jesus, we gotta talk to you. James and John, Jesus, we gotta talk to you. What is it? Uh, we have something to ask, but, but before we ask, we wanna make sure that you're gonna say yes. See that? Jesus, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to agree to whatever it is that we're going to say next. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's, it's fascinating. If you read the story told in the book of, of Matthew, because Matthew also tells the same story, in the book of Matthew, there's more people traveling than just the disciples. And one of the people traveling with the disciples, according to Matthew, is the boy's mom. I call them boys because they're acting like children at this moment. And the boy's mom, according to Matthew, is the one who says, hey boys, now's your chance. All the disciples are nodding. Go, 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 go. And, and, and in Matthew, mom brings the boys to Jesus and says, ask him, ask him, ask him. And it was like, Jesus, you got one of those kids in your family? I got, I got a couple. <laughs> they, got, they come to my room, they're like, Papa, you know, they do this thing, um, and I know, and I'm like, what is it? You know we're going to ask, and I'm like, well, spit it out, right? You got one of those in your family? They just they want you to do whatever before, and you're like, you know what they want, but you know, they don't want to ask. Come on, Papa, you know what we want. That's, uh, okay, she's looking at me right now. Okay, anyway. So they're being childish. They're being childish. They're like, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we say, right? Are you, gonna, are you cool with that? Because I don't want to ask if you're not going to say yes. And you know what's fascinating here? Jesus is having a serious moment. He's contemplating. He's on his way, walking purposely toward his suffering, his shame, and his death. But he takes a moment and he says to, to them, what do you want me to do for you? It just blew me away when I read that. It blew me away. Jesus says, okay. You know how Jesus can see through your stuff? Like, he, he knows. But he stops and he honors them by saying, okay, ask me. What do you want me to do for you? Ask me. It blew me away because when I'm on purpose, when I'm going somewhere where I got something to do, I got no time for foolishness. You with me? I'm on some parents there. You, 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 you got to say amen to that. You know what it's like? You got something to do and you got your kids here. Blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to be a patient dad, but like I have no time for foolishness. So you know what I say? Go ask your mother. <laughs> right? 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 I tell them, I, I, I can't help you right now. I feel I can't. I got something I have to do. And, and, and I wouldn't be upset with Jesus if he said, look, James and John, you guys are wasting my time. I'm trying to. I'm trying to save humanity. <laughs> and you're coming at me with some silly questions. Can you just do whatever we ask? But no, Jesus stops and he says, what do you want? What? Imagine that. 
Can you imagine the Savior on His way to death, walking purposefully and stopping to just acknowledge your stuff? And He says, okay, ask me. What do you want me to do? And notice their request, the revelation of where their mind has been this whole time. They said, okay, Jesus. Okay. Well, here's what we want. Verse 37. Let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left when you're finally in your glory, in your throne of glory, according to, to Matthew. So while Jesus is talking suffering, death, humiliation, they're thinking nothing about that. They're still fixated on this idea that Jesus is an earthly king, an earthly figure. They're still fixated on this idea that this miraculous power and things that Jesus seems to hold is going to change their circumstances, that it's going to elevate them. And in this moment, these two men, boys, these two boys are fixated on getting the choice seats, the most important spots. See, earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, when you, when, when, when you with me, you will be seated on thrones and you will be given authority. It's the same promise of revelation. You remember, God says that there will be a time when we are elevated to a position of authority where we get to open the books and see because God wants us to vindicate his righteousness. But what the disciples were thinking is, I'm going to get more power. And these two guys aren't just satisfied with just being in the circle. They're like, I want to be right next to you. I want to be in your right, and I want to be in your left. If you ever watch one of the presidential photo ops, obviously it's important who's right next to him. Is it Pelosi or is it some other Republican? You know, it makes, it makes a difference who's right next to you, who's standing next to you in the Rose Garden. It's the same thing. Who's next to you represents the next in line, the next person of position and authority. And in their minds, they were convinced that Jesus was in it for earthly power and that eventually he was going to win. And when that happened, those closest to him would be elevated in earthly power. So these two boys seized the opportunity. I Shoved by their mother. If you're one of those moms out there, watch out. Mom says, go, go, go. Now's your chance. And they say, Jesus, we want to sit at your right or at your left. And Jesus, amazing person that he is, he turns to them and with like compassion in his heart, he says, you, you have no idea what you're asking. You don't seem to understand. I don't think you heard what I just said. The part about being flogged, spit on. And so he asks them, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And these are not unknown uh, analogies. To, to, to drink the cup, as you know, because Jesus will say it, is to endure the thing the lot has been given to you. Is to, to, to drink the cup is to live the life that has been planned and proposed for you. We know this because Jesus is in the garden later where he says, God, my Father, let this cup Pass from me. I don't want to endure this. But, 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 but no answer comes from heaven. And so Jesus knows the cup he has to drink is what he just said. Suffering, shame, humility. And he says to them, is, are you sure you can do that? And the baptism represents death. Jesus is about to die before he can be resurrected. And he says, are you sure? And they say, yep, no problem. Hashtag easy. We can. 
they answer. And, and, and all that reveals to us is how oblivious these guys are to what Jesus is actually saying. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because I'm afraid that some of us are in their same position. I'm afraid that some of us have been listening to Jesus, journeying with Jesus, taking the tour of Mark, the tour of the Bible, and we're nodding, amen, amen, sure, praise God, hallelujah, but we're oblivious to what Jesus is actually challenging us to. We're oblivious to what, he's, what his true purpose is. Some of us are still sort of fixated on this idea that God is trying to establish an earthly kingdom and that being part of the church of God means that we will be elevated to the right and to the left in positions of authority in different ways. Some of us have been misled to believe that if, I, if I'm in there enough, if I do it enough, I'll be elevated in the religious circles. I know some of you guys never thought about this, but I grew up in a church where everyone coveted being the head elder. You know what I'm talking about? People coveted being in charge of this ministry because once they got there, they could finally occupy the right seat and the left seat. And from that seat, the right or the left, they could then look down and cast judgment on you mere mortals. You following me? Maybe you didn't think of it that directly, but some of us have been lied and, 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 and falsely led to believe that as we come to Jesus, he will elevate us to a place where we can look across and cast judgment and pass judgment on other people around us. And that's just simply not his cup. That is simply not his baptism. It is not his purpose. It is not what he's offering you. He is not offering you the right seat of self-righteousness or the left seat of piety. That's not what he's offering you. So I'm going to speak plainly and clearly. Jesus says, I have come to suffer. I have come to be humiliated so that others don't have to be. He has come to live a life of self-sacrifice, but the disciples are concerned with self-elevation. And they say, Jesus, we want to be on your right, your left. And Jesus says, are you sure you know what you're asking? Yes, not a problem for us. And Jesus says, okay, fine then. You will drink the cup and you will be baptized. But to give these seats, that's not for me to say. Wow, so patient, Jesus, so patient. I would have just... I would have just laughed. I would have just laughed. <laughs> How dare you? But no. See, Jesus is so different from me. He's got so much love for you. Unimaginable. And in patience, he tells them, listen, guys, you don't know what you're asking, and I can't give you that, because that is not what I'm offering. Look, the other disciples suddenly made aware that someone is bustling in on their turf. The Bible says they become indignant. When the other ten heard about this, became indignant with James and John. Not because they had been so brazen, I think. I think because they beat them to the punch. We know this because they're going to keep arguing this way all the way to the upper room. They became indignant, and Jesus calls them together, and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers or important people in the Gentile world, they lord it over those that are under them. 
Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, in you, for you, in this kingdom, what I'm offering is whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the last, must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, we've got to capture this. We have got to capture this. The invitation that Jesus is making is not for the right seat of power, the left seat of power. The invitation Jesus is making is that we would sacrifice ourselves to bless somebody else. Because somebody's got to tell them that God loves them. Somebody's got to tell them that they matter and they're worthwhile. Somebody's got to tell them that Jesus has died on the cross to provide an alternative to what you've been told, to the way you were raised, to what society says about you. Somebody's got to do it, and Jesus says, I will do it myself, but I need others who will go in my stead. I send you. The Christian life is not about the right seat or the left. It's about the last seat. The last one. The one that gets no recognition but makes all the difference. So I'm here to ask you today. What are you in it for? Because Jesus makes that same request. What do you want me to do for you? What do you think I have to offer you? Look, I'll be honest. God has the world's blessings ready to bestow you. But if you don't understand His kingdom, you will not understand the blessings. The Bible is full of stories where God gave a lot more than people lost. Abraham, Lot, uh, Job. God is, God is full of resources to give you. But unless you understand the heart of the maker, you can't receive the gifts. Because the greatest gift he has to offer is not the right seat of power, the right seat, left seat of authority. The greatest gift he has to offer is salvation. It is forgiveness from ourselves. It is a redefining of our identity. It is helping us discover who we truly are in Him, not what we've been told, not what we've come to experience. The real gift is to liberate us from our own self-destruction and to claim Him as our only path. So I'm asking you to consider this for yourself. You're here, and I'm grateful, and I love seeing you. And we're worshiping God together. But are you just, uh-huh, amen, praise, but you've misunderstood who God is? Because He did not come to this world to elevate your station. He came to this world to give His life as a ransom in exchange for those who couldn't help themselves, including you and me. He came to give His life and suffer in our place and in the place of others who are currently suffering. The problem is, they're never going to know unless you and I walk with purpose like Jesus did. They're never going to know unless you and I are willing to be shamed, ridiculed, spit on, to liberate somebody else. Think about it. Because I know that there's somebody in your life, you could lord your righteousness over them. You could stand on that high seat and say, you're wrong, you're doing bad things. Or you can get down on your hands and knees and take their punishment instead. You could suffer in their stead. You could sacrifice your pride. You don't always have to win, you know. 
You can sacrifice your self-righteousness. You can even sacrifice your resources. Give away your money. Let someone else use your stuff. Give your approval. You could sacrifice so many things that would awaken hope in other people, but no, instead we're concerned with having the right seat on the left. What am I going to get out of this? What's in it for me? And Jesus says, that's not the cup. It's just not the cup. For the Son of Man came to suffer for you, for me. He came to lay himself down, to give himself up for you and for me and for everyone else who desperately needs him. And our job is to live this out daily so that others, so that others might see him as the Savior. How about it, friends? What are you in it for? The right or the left? What do you want Jesus to do for you? I'm asking Jesus to, to break my pride down. I'm asking Jesus to take from me, you know, I have claims to stuff. I've been here longest. I'm trained. But I'm asking Jesus just to knock that stuff, to, to let, me, let me be willing to, to, to stoop low, be humiliated if necessary, just so that someone would, someone would finally believe that we are who we say we are. That we are, in fact, Christ followers. That we love like Jesus. That we will sacrifice like Jesus. That we will accept like Jesus. That we will forgive like Jesus. I'm praying that God gives me the courage and the strength to do that. Not be concerned with how I look in front of you and whether or not you'll keep me here. But that I will lay everything down if he asks me to for the sake of anyone, anyone in this world that needs to hear it and see it from me. What about you? What do you want? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What's your answer? Would you please stand and sing with us as we close?